0: we don't know what politics is going to look like in LA anymore. We've had very few people involved in local politics and the few people who've been involved have been neutral to negative on bicycle related investments or taking road space away from automobiles. And I feel like what we're seeing now with the increased level of participation in local politics is potentially more people getting involved who care about this issue.
1: The big uh, topic is the tram
2: it's bad for people that want to experience the wilderness it's bad for the habitat it's a wilderness
1: and we want it to remain a wilderness Or did you want so Here we are, Bike Talk Live on KPFK, now on Zoom, with uh, Nick Richard and Don Ward. Hey, Don. Hey, did you ride your bike this week? I ride my bike to the market to pick up groceries, and I do a little morning uh, workout ride, but um, I've been really lazy lately. I've been cold in the morning.
3: I did ride to the brewery, our local brewery. Oh, uh, cool! Is, yeah. And, uh, Imagine
1: if everybody rode bikes to the bars.
3: A lot safer.
1: Yeah, a whole lot safer. This makes you wonder why they, why they, uh, why the government forces uh, establishments to have parking lots, like bars to have parking lots, right? Sort of contradictory.
3: It is amazing when you think that, that everybody in L.A. drives to the bar.
1: And not only that, they the, like, I guess policy or maybe the law says that cops can't hang out around the corner from a bar to catch drunk drivers. What? Like that's seen as entrapment or something like that.
3: It's so weird. It's sort of like, like people want to be able to break laws and just sort of have like a, a sporting chance <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah we're funny um we're going to have Nithya Nithya Raman on who who won <laughs> that's right who won it's like this is like earthquake news like mm-hmm. this is huge huge
3: because she i she was described as in that one article that you looked at as the uh la's first unbought uh elected official
1: that's probably very true
3: because she had all this like small donor support
1: yeah and she you know when we had her on last time she described the process of meticulously uh returning money that was not, you know, that was not clean money. So. Uh, amazing. Amazing. And because the
3: problem with all of our council members has been they're being bought.
1: Yeah. Well, the problem with our entire political system is that it's bought and you know, it there's every so often you'll get candidates that commit to small money. And uh, they usually don't win. I haven't, I think Nithy is like the first candidate I know of that committed to small money that won. I mean, mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders committed to small money. Um, usually like grassroots candidates like uh, Tommaso Grady, who went up against Ryu four years ago mm-hmm. and like 12 other people, um, you know, they they really depend on volunteer work. And this is the thing about she had a massive army of volunteers so that's incredible incredible ground Uh, game ground game was part of it but there were more groups involved than just ground game but uh definitely ground game and you uh,
3: you were one of the volunteers right
1: yeah but i didn't volunteer very much like sadly um but when i did uh sign up for phone banking i got on zoom i'd see like 40 people um each time 40 to 50 people on their their zoom uh you know phone banking operation and, you know i was just like wow i was blown away cuz you normally don't get that many people on a, like say a wednesday or a thursday night when i signed up so
3: so what what was it what was why was nithia uh able to get so much support
1: I mean, when you talk to her, she's just a very genuine person, you know uh, she just comes across as a very genuine person, very believable, um very hopeful, and has great ideas, and doesn't talk in you know platitudes. um She really has like actual policy plans. And uh, that's something that David Ryu always was a person who was just speaking platitudes, even during his primary. Um, He wouldn't commit to any kind of policy ideas. We'll talk about this with her, with her, you know, but it's like the media has basically ignored this, you know, they, I haven't seen a lot of coverage on this and there's other people saying the same thing. And it's sort of like questioning why is, is she not, is her, incredible earthquake victory not covered by the media you know i have my own thoughts on that i think it's a lot of it has to do with that david ryu was the democratic endorsed you know Mm -hmm. candidate in fact he was endorsed by uh hillary clinton (laughs) nancy pelosi and diane feinstein like some of the biggest politicians in the Democratic Party, the biggest politicians so in the
3: why Party. why would they endorse him? Well,
1: uh, good because business. that's yeah. that's the way that the Democratic Party works. Right. They work from on high, they're a two billion dollar operation, you know, and when they pretty much have everything on lock, but when they see, you know, their endorsed candidates Faltering, they'll put all kinds of resources into that race, no matter how small. I mean, not that this this is not a small race. This is a huge race.
3: So it's just automatic. It just kicks in.
1: I mean, I'm sure there's some kind of wheeling and dealing going on back there. You know, obviously, the Democratic Party is not going to do something unless there's money involved.
3: Well, it just it also shows how important the L.A. City Council races are huge
1: hugely important this is like one of the most powerful council seats one of the most powerful city councils in the united states of america this is like the city council of los angeles you know you can point to and 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 we only have 15 city council members i think in new york which you could argue might be a more powerful city council in some ways um, I think they have like something like 40 or they have a lot of city council members there And Chicago, I think is the same way Los Angeles only has 15 and, uh, you know, it's, it's a hugely important race. So, I mean, Bernie Sanders endorsed Nithya, which is amazing. And then I guess David Ryu, you know, had to go back to the democratic party and be like, yo, I need, I need the big guns. Somebody, somebody endorsed me. And they brought out Hillary Clinton, yeah. Diane Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi, who are like probably the three worst choices, but the most powerful Democrats uh, endorsing David Ryu. That's so funny. So well, I think here, we
3: have, here comes Nithya.
1: Okay, cool. Hi. Hi Nithya. Hi. need we need like uh balloons and confetti (laughs) fly all over the place here to really capture this sorry
0: i was a couple of minutes late how are you guys
1: great we're great we're ecstatic we're excited (laughs) we're energized wow you won it's unreal (laughs) so cool congratulations
0: thank you thank you how are you both doing perfect
1: yeah uh (laughs) um great uh you know just this is insane you you are a grassroots you are a genuine grassroots candidate and you won i mean this doesn't happen in la city politics i mean in terms of of city council members this i like when was the last time this happened an incumbent was toppled maybe like what 20 years ago a little less than 20 years ago
0: yeah. And I want to, I want to brag for one minute. Cause the last time this happened was um, when Antonio Villaragosa.
4: Yeah.
0: So uh, it wasn't, um, wasn't a total political newcomer. So this is, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting for someone who doesn't have a political background at all to be able to, to do this. Uh, it took an incredible amount of work, of course. And, you know, it was a long commitment. I've been running now for 15 months.
4: <laughs>
3: wow. 15 so, months.
0: Yeah. that's a uh, long-
3: What's it like to now not be running and have having won?
0: Well, you know, uh, so last Friday, about exactly a week ago was when um, the incumbent David Rue called to, you know, concede and, um, and so it's been about a week and I will say the first couple of days uh, it was like I was still on, had this big adrenaline rush and there was a, a rush of messages and all that stuff. And, but yesterday I think finally it kicked in that now it's, it's not just a moment, it's for the next four years and, uh, and the enormity of what had just happened sunk in. And I think also just a little bit of exhaustion from From just having done this for as long as I have. So today I'm feeling a little bit um, uh, like I want to, I'm looking forward to the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but it's been a very exciting week. Um, I've been, you know, reaching out to other council member or they've been reaching out to me and having conversations about what I can learn from them. I've been learning about how you put an office together for this kind of role, Um, I've been talking to people who've worked in city hall for many years and who may, may have left, um, who are advising on, you know, how you set up an office and all of those nuts and bolts. But the biggest thing for me, oh, and I've been talking to press because I think people are excited that, uh, you know, one, there was a wave of kind of progressive candidates and measures and things like that, that one in Los Angeles but two, also, as you said, this doesn't happen very often in in L.A. that a city council, sitting city council member gets um, defeated. So I think people are excited to cover it and see what this means for the future of Los Angeles.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting that you say that the press has been contacting you. Is it mainstream press? Because we kind of had a little debate. I forget which forum, but it was like, why is this not getting more press. It seems like it's not getting much press, but I guess the press has been talking to you. Uh,
0: Yes, the press has covered it. Uh, Certainly we've gotten more mainstream press coverage in this last week than we ever did during the race, particularly local press, local mainstream press. You know, I think our campaign was skillful in trying to attract national media attention. And we did get some. uh, And Uh, you know, publications like the Daily Beast covered the race a long time ago. And, uh, you know, I had a little, little profile in Vogue online, not in the actual print magazine, but, you know, so we were able to kind of get, garner quite a bit of national attention because of what we were doing and how we were running the race. But, This past week was the first time that I felt like local media, except for a couple of articles in the LA Times, really deeply engaged with the race and what it meant and how we were campaigning and all of that stuff. So, uh, you know, I think partly it's just that we don't have a lot of local press and the people who are working in those publications are stretched really, really thin. I mean, in, for example, at the LA Times, there's what, two reporters who cover every City council member plus development issues um, plus cannabis—you know—they have huge portfolios. So for them to be deeply paying attention to this, I think they—they—they just don't have the bandwidth.
1: Okay, we'll accept that answer. I think there are some other reasons, but we'll take. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Um, Yeah, I think think you're probably right, but I—I do think that if we like in New York City, I think there's more local press. There's a more Mm -hmm. vibrant local news media that covers city council and city hall a little bit more assiduously than we do have here in L.A. And yeah.
1: So I'm looking at some of the statistics you on uh, the LAPod.com. There was a write up, um, actually a great write up here by um, Hayes Davenport who I, uh, I think he was a staffer for you, right? He worked with the campaign
5: here. Yeah.
0: He was a volunteer. volunteer okay.
1: yeah. So his, you know, it says here, you had 2000 unique volunteers. That's, uh, I've never seen that before. I mean, I haven't, I've only been around for paying attention to politics for maybe 15, 20 years here in Los Angeles, but man, that's amazing. Uh, Like talk about maybe some of the organizations that that got involved.
0: Yeah. So it was a mixture of things that led to that many volunteers being engaged. So we had some endorsing organizations that really put boots on the ground for us. So in the primary, we were endorsed by the Sunrise Movement, the local branch of the Sunrise Movement, Ground Game LA, of course, um, DSA LA, uh, Bike the Vote. Uh, and let me see what else, who else endorsed us? CHURLA, um, the National Women's Political Caucus, and in the general heart of LA, Democrat, Democratic Club, Democratic Parents, East Valley Indivisibles endorsed us in the primary. And a lot of these groups, so a lot of times an endorsement doesn't means that you get to put a logo on a mailer, but the groups that ended up endorsing this campaign we're also really committed to getting deeply engaged in progressive politics in LA and so that meant we had a huge surge of volunteers. I remember one weekend Sunrise brought 30 volunteers to canvas in the primary you know and they they must have between those groups they knocked on thousands of doors for us. DSA had a regular canvassing operation that met up every weekend and in the general election they had multiple phone banking nights a week. You know that they 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 called upon their membership to really step up, not just for this seat, but for all of their endorsed candidates. They endorsed Constantine in Burbank, they endorsed Fatima in um, for her assembly race, um, and they really stepped up for all of those candidates. And I, I'm really impressed with um, the level to which these endorsing organizations stepped up with volunteers. But we also had an independent re- volunteer recruitment operation, which was really really intensive. So in the primary, we recruited over 600 unique volunteers. And in the general, we had over a thousand volunteers just in our campaign slack. And we recruited them because we were able to get on alternative media like this and like podcasts and get people excited and get people, um, you know, in wanting to get involved in local politics. Plus the push from the protest, the uprising that happened, got people excited about getting involved in local politics. And we just were ready to take them on. So we had a volu- volunteer onboarding event that we would do in the general with a big Zoom where we would tell people about city politics, why it mattered, and, and kind of give them a briefing on me as a candidate and why I was running. And then we would just get them on shifts, you know, for phone banking and postcarding. So by the end of the race, we had all of these volunteers. We sent out about 60,000 handwritten postcards, mostly to renters. Wow, rentals. wow. Uh, wow. And uh, by the way, we won renters. We won almost every precinct which had apartment buildings in it. And I think part of that was the outreach that we did in the general, in the primary, we knocked on all of those doors. We got into apartment buildings and knocked on apartment building doors. And then- That's hard. That's hard to do. It is hard to do. Yeah. And it's legal. We stayed within the full bounds of the law. sure. Uh, Sure. We did not intrude on anyone's privacy, but we uh, we did go and uh, door knock wherever we could, and then in the in the general, we sent them all postcards, sometimes multiple times.
3: So, how does that translate to actually being in office when you uh, have so many people involved?
0: Yeah, I don't. You know, that's a good question because we haven't really seen that in local politics in Los Angeles before, right? I just and the scale of the change is really massive. So, in the last general election for this race a total of 24,000 people voted that you know and so david rue got a little more than half of those votes right so in mm. 2015 when he, when he came into power i just checked the election results they were updated again today um, in this election i personally got 69,000 votes wow right wow
4: so
3: yeah. this
0: huge increase in voter participation and i, I over 120,000 people Voted in the, in this city council race in, in this, in this, in this district. And so That's there's
1: half the district.
0: Yeah. Uh, more than, I mean, it's um, so it's actually out of registered voters, registered voters are about 180,000 in the district. So 120,000 out of 180,000 registered voters voted in a city council race in LA.
1: That is fantastic. Yeah. That is fantastic. Wow. Yeah. yeah, the district itself has uh 250,000 people, yeah. so.
0: Yeah, over 250,000 people, and a huge percentage of those voters were um, registered voters, and we managed to get a lot of them to vote down ballot, which was really exciting.
1: Love it, love it.
0: But your question, Nick, about, um, you know, how do you, what does it mean to have this many people engaged? The answer is that we don't know what politics is going to look like in LA anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's two challenges ahead. One is to continue to engage with residents in the way that the campaign allowed us to do. Um, but two is also to be able to meet the expectations of residents who now have a sense of what they're owed from their city government or what city government is able to accomplish. And I think both of those are gonna be challenges that we're gonna have to grapple with. Um, in an era where I think there is, you uh, you know, I think there's there's really heightened expectations on both of those fronts. So I'm excited. I'm nervous about meeting those expectations, but uh, but I'm mostly excited about what that means.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the way that you guys organized your volunteers and pulled this off, that's that only is a good indicator of how you're going to, you know, continue to Take that momentum into the into the office itself, like you obviously have the ability to organize and get things done, so that looks very promising.
0: yeah, I mean, I think getting things done in city hall requires a whole nother set of skills, which requires coalition building, which requires uh, communication skills, which requires uh, policy making expertise and the ability to work with other council members to to build those policies. I do think that I come into this position with a lot of humility about what this requires. And um, I hope that I've, you know, I've, I'm reaching out to a lot of people to learn about how to be a good council person. And I hope that I'm asking the right questions and talking to the right people.
1: We have a couple of listeners on who uh, would like to ask you some questions if you don't mind.
0: Uh sure, I hope I'm able to answer them.
1: Yeah, uh well, we could start with uh let's start with Marvin. And uh, he's he's kind of a recurring uh, guest on our show and and a transportation nerd if you will. So um you know, let's uh let's open it up to Marvin.
6: Hey Marvin. Hey guys. And Nithya. Am I pronouncing it right?
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay.
6: All right, um, Well, I mean, I don't live in L.A., so I, I'm not very familiar with your district, but um, uh, being never the bicyclist, uh, what what do we have to look forward to in your district for biking for the next few years? I know some of the districts, every once in a while, when I go over there, I notice that they've repaved and they forgot bike lanes, for example, and I find out, oh, the councilman blocked the bike lanes, so... <laughs> Hopefully, we we don't have to listen. We don't have to go through that sad uh, saga much longer in your district.
0: No, um, you know, I think I talked a lot about trying to find ways to make it easier for people to get out of cars, to make it safer for people to get around the district, um, to invest in in safety for pedestrians and for bicyclists, including. putting in some protected bike lanes uh, through the district. The one thing I'm really excited to do is to talk to other council members in districts that border us to see if we can get some real networks of transportation going. And I know that those plans already exist um, in the mobility plan 2035. And I know that there was a plan in 2010, which also had some really nice networks mapped out in the city. So I'd really like to go to those uh see what makes sense to invest in initially and uh try and see whether we can make that happen uh over these coming months and I'm I'm really excited to fight for uh, fight for space for pedestrians and for bicyclists. Awesome.
1: Yeah, Bob Blumenfield and even uh, Mitchell Farrell, they Blumenfield very seems very bike friendly and uh he's in the he's in the valley. And then uh, Mitchell Farrell actually does do things for pedestrians and bikes, although he's. Are you going to have a?
3: Are you going to have a bike person in your office on your staff?
0: We'll have a we'll have a deputy of some kind who will cover transportation issues. Who I you know we haven't made any staff decisions yet, but we will be ensuring that um, this is an individual who knows about this issue and who cares about it. Um so yeah so we're looking forward to that but I'll probably be able to share more about that in a couple of weeks or maybe two
1: Okay weeks. yeah Uh we have one more person uh on Jennifer Gill um Jennifer you have a question for Nithya We'll have Let to unmute.
7: Hi hi Ni- congratulations Thank you so much Wow that that was awesome <laughs> I'm so amazed. I mean, everybody's amazed, but I'm very, I'm very happy for you. And, now, Jennifer
1: um, Hill, you, you're on the bicycle advisory committee appointed yeah. by. And yeah.
7: And I think we've met. I think, um, you know, you've maybe come to our meetings. I'm, I, I'm not sure. I mean, we have Kent Strumpel, um, Michael Schneider. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, so he, he's really involved now with our um, advisory <laughs> committee do you,
1: do you have a question for nithia yeah regarding uh
7: yeah well 6th street you know i know you're in cd4 so i know 6th street was a big deal i didn't want to really be specific but i thought maybe why not you know um that was a big contentious um area and it really would help you know we come across fourth from my district i'm cd1 also which is um council member Cedillo. And I don't know if you know much about his background. I can talk to you about it some other time, but um, he, you know, he has a hard time with the bicycle community at this point, but maybe not anymore, you know, because we're right next door to each other. So maybe we can join East and West, like you said, um, You know, like we have a we have a
1: fellow endorsed, uh, I think, by Bernie Sanders. Gil Sadio was endorsed by Bernie Sanders, wasn't
0: he? Oh, really? I didn't
1: know. There is a little commonality there.
0: Yeah, he endorsed Bernie Sanders. Uh, He did. Yeah. And I didn't realize he was endorsed as well, but he's not he won't be running until 2022 again.
1: Right. I could be wrong about him being endorsed by Bernie Sanders. I thought maybe
0: uh, very, very possible.
1: Yeah, um, but well, he doesn't help He a helped relationship. Us.
7: He, yeah. he, and he helped us recently his office. I couldn't believe it. They helped us to um, fix the Arroyo Seco. His okay. deputy, you know, wrote a letter and we they got everybody um, joined together and they fixed it in, in really quick time because they had to worry. they were worried about flooding. So, There's you know, maybe he. For it. pardon. What were they doing for it? Um, well, there was a big cement block that had, uh, you know, uh, been m- just cracked and taken out of place so nobody could ride on it. So they shut it down and nobody and, and people were cutting holes in the fences so they could ride and they would keep closing it up again. So finally, they they fixed it. That's and, and CD1 got involved in that. So I'm, you know, I'm not saying he, you know, I'm trying to say that maybe he will, you know, shift a little now. Well, and, no, I think one thing, um,
0: Jennifer, is, which I think is true, and I think this was the premise behind uh, Bike the Votes' involvement in electoral politics, too, is that yeah. what we've seen in Los Angeles is that historically we've had very few people involved in local politics and the few people who've been involved have been fairly, uh, I, I would say, neutral to negative on bicycle related investments or taking road space away from automobiles. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what we're seeing now with the increased level of participation in local politics is potentially more people getting involved who care about this issue and who are voting on not just this, but on a range of issues. But I think they're aligned on this as well. And so I do feel like we have the potential for people who have been in office, to hear that and to make changes that align with voters' expressed interests, you know, so mm-hmm. I I
7: do think this is a very exciting moment. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks, Jennifer.
7: I do have one more. Um, Just one more. Yeah. Uh Dawn, one more thing, and it's to do with the homeless along the bike paths. Yeah. And I know you're involved with the homeless issue, so I would love to get some kind of a you know, conversation about that later, not today, but it is to do with bikes in a way because it's not safe sometimes.
0: Yes, I agree. And I do, I mean, I think that there are questions around, um, uh, you know, uh, around those issues that that are worthy of, uh, certainly of longer discussion. I will say that I think my priority is to make sure that we have more shelter beds and housing units and, and things like that available for people. Yeah, Uh, and I think particularly at this moment where there is kind of an increase in vulnerability and increase in housing insecurity to me that remains a priority, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think these questions are are certainly worth discussing and I'd love to find a time to have a deeper discussion about
7: it. Okay, good. I will keep, I will keep, uh, I will remind you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Jennifer.
7: Sure.
3: Well, that's good what we have you for uh, that that time
0: well thank Um, you for having me it's always a pleasure to come back here i feel like i'm here doing like a victory lap now you know yeah this is
3: this is your house (laughs) our casa su casa
7: we could have a ride with you in your neighborhood you know we have this um advocacy and education subcommittee and we're working on getting rides all over with each uh council district you know what would be nice yeah let's set that up for the for this
0: transition period that would be really fun okay put it on social media and stuff it might be really it would be a nice way to communicate um communicate my interest in this and also some of the challenges that writers face as they're getting around the city and we have a pretty big social media platform that i developed through the campaign so we could use it to talk about these issues
7: i'll uh, i'll connect with you on both things then yeah fantastic okay Okay. yeah thank you all thank you you. good luck thank you congratulations Congratulations. yeah congratulations again (laughs) bye one more question oh yes
0: who's that
6: um are are you gonna Um, have a cargo bike out of your office it's uh to to run like errands around the district or just to show off uh district
0: am Um, i gonna have a bike in my office
6: well, yeah, like, like a, a cargo bike for the, for the district office to like, you know, bring stuff to constituents or just, you know, show off around the, the, the district or and oh, the like community. a
1: staff cargo bike. Yeah, That's
0: not yeah. a bad idea. Yeah.
6: Yeah. And, and also, you know, give people in, in information on like all the stuff, the incentives the state has going to help them get into the cargo bikes and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah,
0: sure. I mean it's definitely. I will much, say right now we're not. um I think most of the district offices are closed because of COVID. But once they're open, once we're getting the word out to people, yeah, that's a good idea, for sure. Awesome. Okay. All right. Bye. Take care. Um,
1: All right. Wow. Yeah. Good earthquake. Job, earthquake news <laughs> in the city council. Oh
7: wow. Mm
1: so um, good,
7: good job don i know you worked on that effort
1: not as much as i should have but yeah
7: well you uh, did
1: <laughs> just enough i was definitely promoting nithia on my social media as well as uh, i did a little bit of phone banking but the amount of enthusiasm for that campaign was great and david ryu you're done <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like amazing so okay um we're gonna bring on jerry hans with friends of friends of growth park which is a local org um so thanks marvin and jennifer and uh we'll catch you guys Great questions yeah let's uh let's bring jerry on jerry welcome to Bike hey Talk. don
2: how you? how you doing good to good. see you in a while
1: yeah I have uh I think the last time I saw you was at the Super Bowl at at uh, Aaron's Pad.
2: Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Used <laughs> to be the time. So, um, how's everything going with Griffith Park, from uh, from your point of view?
2: Well, you know, the COVID's been a challenge. Yeah. Um, no. You know, we. I don't know if you saw all those big banners. Friends of Griffith Park put all those out because the department really doesn't have enough money to buy signs um i mean
1: griffith park doesn't have enough money
2: yeah it's it's hard to believe but
1: um yeah they got that new parking nobody's parking
2: parking, nobody's parking there now though
1: (laughs) oh well i mean okay
2: yeah it's 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 uh hard to to figure you know the priorities for the department um of course, um, there was a lot of money spent on this uh, feasibility study for the aerial tram. But uh, going back to, you know, what we can do in the park, um, you know, but Francis Griffith Park, we, we've, we've really got into a lot of volunteer activities over the last couple of years, and we're completely shut out now. And really? They won't let us do a thing, and it's really a shame because... You know, right now we have people just begging to volunteer Um, and, you know, we offer to social distance and, and just, you know, groups of two and three. Uh, But it just, just, uh, just doesn't, uh, just doesn't work uh, according to the HR department uh, or division of uh, Rec and Parks. But uh, it's really a shame because we've actually had to pass on some really good Uh, grant opportunities. Um, There's grant opportunities right now uh, across the country for for doing volunteer services during this period of of, uh, COVID. So, um, you know, one of of the uh, organizations, National uh, National Environmental Education Foundation, we've won several grants from them before. And we had to pass on two of them just because we can't volunteer right now.
1: Okay, so this is just a temporary thing. It's not like friends- It's of a temporary party. thing, yeah. Okay, yeah. Because I, I know you guys do a lot of good work um, and work. W- I mean, you guys were working with Joe Silasis, Like you guys had a great relationship with him and uh, I haven't been following, I don't know who his replacement was, but it seemed like you guys had a good relationship. Yeah, Joe.
2: Uh, Joe was great. Yeah, we were sorry to hear that he he took early retirement. Um, well, not really early retirement, but he could have stayed on a little bit longer. <clears throat> his timing was perfect. He got out right before the COVID. Um,
1: but just uh, being the uh, the direct. He was the supervisor of the of
2: superintendent. Griffith yeah, the, of the Griffith section. It was his yeah. title. Yeah, and you know Joe's a t- tremendous guy. You know I. I, uh, I, we all had a great relationship with him, but uh, I talked with him a lot about, um, you know, getting some of the roads, other roads in Griffith Park closed uh, to cars. Um, and he was, he was, he was really pushing for that. He wanted uh, a section of Griffith Park Drive closed, like between the um, go, uh, clubhouse and, um the uh, travel town, that whole section, he wanted that closed. And it really is, you know, dangerous for cars coming through there.
1: Who's the new superintendent? Have they named that person yet?
2: Yes, they have. And she, she is great. She came okay. from maintenance. She was the, she was the head of head of maintenance. Her name is Stephanie Smith, Stephanie with an F and, um, <clears throat> and she basically worked with us for uh, our volunteer activities over the, quite a few years now. Um, so um, you know, good relationship continues at least with the local people here in the park.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So the big, the big uh, topic is the tram. They're they're looking at putting a tram in. Is that uh, was yeah. that who's who's behind this and who's pushing for this and what do you guys think about it
2: yeah well everyone asks well who, who whose idea was this and of course you know no one wants to take the credit or the blame for it but uh, it seems to be you know fairly high up uh, of course the the root of or the excuse for the aerial tram is is rooted in the um problem of um traffic and congestion uh from tourists seeking to see the hollywood sign um and that's you know the the residents uh south of the hollywood sign uh beechwood canyon hollywood land um in in those areas um so there was a there was a um study done uh, by dixon resources they're actually a parking lot or parking uh, same people that did the study up up at uh, up at the observatory Um, and they they did have um, a couple of community meetings where people from the community provided ideas and they packaged up all of these ideas and added uh, some of their own Um, and it was released in early 2018 and there were 29 strategies they called them Um, and um, the most expensive of course was the aerial tram so that's the one
1: that they went for first
2: so who would be
1: paying for that where would the money come from would it come from those fees or
2: the park well it came out of the general fund of recreation and parks and it was approved by the Department of Recreation and Parks Commission. Um, the first approval.
1: And this this is for the study, right? But but let's the, say let's abilities. say they move. Let's say they move forward with the tram. Where would that money come from?
2: Um, we've we've asked that question, and and I I think probably um, it, it could come from the city. In fact, the the people we interviewed with, they they did do some outreach. They said, well, we can float a bond. And I said, well, good luck with that. I'm sure the public's going to f- want to pay for an aerial tram. Uh, <laughs> and, th- and then they also said that the private-public partnerships, uh, and that's what's really scary. I think the money could be there. Even in these times of fiscal crisis for the city, the money could be there. and mm. And that's why... You know, we tried to raise uh, some awareness of this because no one else really was, but the commission did um, approve uh, $600,000 and then the Stantec is doing the feasibility study and they came back and asked for a change order of 150,000. So we're up to $750,000 spent on this feasibility study and we're in phase two of four.
1: Um. So they've 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 uh, okay. So we got this this problem. Can, where, can we
8: talk
3: about why? Like yeah, when you the, look the, at the when you look the, at the artist rendering of the of the tram. Wait
1: wait. Let's 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 okay. back up a little bit more. So we've got this issue where we have the Hollywood sign, and the Hollywood sign attracts tourists to drive up and take a picture in front of the Hollywood sign, which is up these small roads up in the up in Beechwood Canyon in the Hollywood Hills right there. And uh, the Beechwood association and some of the other uh, homeowners associations have been pushing uh, Tom LeBonge and David DeRue and the park to take in more of this traffic. They're trying to divert this tourist traffic to the park. But the park doesn't have the greatest view of the hollywood sign so you're always going to get people that are going to drive up these little roads and now they've proposed putting a tram that's going to what land at that spot um at the end of uh, i forget the name of the street but it's up there where deronda yeah and you can actually Duranda. get on griffith park trails up through no Beach.
2: No, no um there's that road that road
1: that comes through like dirt mulholland meets it yeah yeah the
2: the the landing spot well there's four options on the table don yeah and um the first three um actually are more than two miles uh two of them are like two and a half miles long so option one originates down at martinez arena where travel town is and gotcha. Goes goes up to uh, Baby Bell, which is right where you probably know where it is. It's where Vista and Mount Hollywood Drive intersect, basically. And then it okay. makes a turn. There's 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 a thing, a big building that they call an angle station, and it changes the direction of of, of the gondola cars by a hundred degrees, and then takes them to the west to this Tyrolean tank uh, view site and that's right basically at the end of Deronda Drive. Okay. Great view there and it's a fairly large flat area right now. So um, option two comes from the zoo parking lot uh, and it goes a little more directly but it does have to change uh, the angle just a little bit at the angle station. By the way, the angle station is a building that's put up in a you know, really wild, you know, the middle of, of wild Griffith Park, and it's gonna be seven to 8,000 square feet building. Right, right. Uh, and option three comes also from the zoo area, the zoo magnet. And it has the advantage that it goes straight, straight across because these are, uh, they call them mono, mono, uh, mono cable detachable gondolas. And they have to go straight unless they go to you know an angle station where they they have to rotate around. Um, <clears throat> so those are the three options, and they're all like you know well over two miles, and and it would entail putting up twenty one to twenty four towers. Each each of those, so you figure, you know how much habitat damage because these towers are all in in you know these native native habitat areas and in yeah. fact where they put them is right on top of these ridge lines that are really you know pretty special habitat and you know we we, we know what's what what grows there you know there's some calicortis lilies and we have uh, uh, some endangered lizards uh the blainesville horn lizard uh that's habitat for them so it's you yeah, know it's really it's like
1: so it's a lot of visual blight of this
2: well like yeah, when you're in yeah.
1: Griffith park the charm the charm of being in griffith park is that you feel like you're in the wild and then if you have these towers everywhere it sort of ruins that special opportunity
2: well it ruins it for us but it also ruins it for the flora and the fauna uh, in, a, in a major way. And, and, you know, we're concerned about that, too. But, um, you know, when we had our second interview, Stantec has this outreach company called Consensus. And we we had a first interview where they told us nothing and they just wanted general ideas. And then the second interview is when they first laid out uh, these four options. The, the, the fourth option, by the way, is the Warner Brother option that comes up from Warner Brothers. And it goes over... Goes over Coinga Peak basically, and comes out at Mount Lee, and then drops down. And they're thinking of doing a a uh, cantilevered platform right under the Hollywood sign. I mean, you're so close. <laughs> yeah, it's really crazy. And of course, the Warner Brother options has concessions and you know store and restaurant and everything else right on at that cantilever platform. But um, getting back to whatever I was talking about. I'm I'm
1: curious. I'm curious that they didn't. uh, Wasn't there also like talk of doing something from the Ford Theater area and just straight up? There's like some kind of easement straight up through there. Well, they they did that.
2: Not a gondola from Ford Theater. However, uh, Ford Theater has plans for a trail that loops up around. Uh, the ridgeline above Ford theater, which uh, is an environmental disaster as well. Uh, and then have a view site from up there, but that's so far away. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's a good. There's,
3: Jerry, there's, there's no protections. There's no legal protections for Griffith parks um, habitat.
2: Um, well, it's city owned. So, you know, whatever they can get away with, but of course you have uh CEQA, the Environmental Protection Act, uh, in the state of California, they have to, you know, get past that hurdle, and then the biological part of that is pretty significant. More than that, um, we have the Vision Plan that's in place, and it, you know, violates everything that the, the Vision Plan was supposed to, you know, stand for. Um, and then on top of that, there is a uh, historic cultural monument dedication number 942 for Griffith Park in its entirety. And that, um, that document uh, actually uh, specifies um, the wilderness area of Griffith Park and, and speaks to why it's so important to keep it uh, as a wilderness area. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's bad, bad for people that want to experience, uh, you know, the wilderness, it's, it's bad for the habitat, you know, the floor, what's going to happen is they build these towers and they impact a fairly large area around each one of these 24 towers and then invasive species come in and then they spread out from there. Whereas right now we have really healthy, um, habitat, um, in, in so many places, uh, it's mostly impacted along trails, you know, where invasive species can come in. So
1: what's, what's the strategy for defeating this? How is this going to Yeah. That.
2: Yeah, good question. And, um, you know, thank God Nithya is really firm on this. In fact, we did a, a candidate's uh, questionnaire, a written questionnaire, and I'll just read you what she said about it. I'd be strongly inclined to cancel the study at the next available stage. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what we called uh, upon the department to do in uh, and also talked to, of course, David Rue about that, uh, and, you know, initially, he, he said, well, let's see how it plays out, you know, the study, we don't, we don't, we don't, um, <clears throat> we don't change things in, in the middle of, of a plan that we've laid out, and the study is, is paid for, it's, it's probably not much chance of getting too much money back. So let's see what they say. And then um, in answering our candidate's question, he said that, uh, I will say that there is no funding for this theoretical project. So, you know, he, he, and, and then later he said he's opposed to it. But the reason he's opposed is because there's not money. And I think that what Nithya, her reason for opposing it is um, is much stronger. She said, uh, uh, it's, you know, environment um, and, you know, it's, it's just not the right solution. So it's, it's, it's,
1: it's, it's like, it's a wilderness and we want it to remain a wilderness. And they, it's like these, like they get itchy or something in the city to do stuff maybe all this parking money they got is like making them a little too itchy over there. And we need to figure out other things to do with that money because I, I, who's are behind, fine. right. It's like, it's a little bit my fault, but, uh, I want to know who up top is behind this. Like, it sounds like, you know, it's like, how does something like this even get to this point?
2: Well, you know, there's, there's certain things that have been thrown out in the press. Uh, one was by the mayor quite a few years ago. Another was a suggestion by, you know, well-moneyed uh, Diller uh, von Furstenberg. Um, <clears throat> there was some talk about there being something that comes from the universal side and crosses bar. And, well, that didn't work out because it would have to go over residential area. Um, but yeah you you know it's it it's just really hard to tie it to any one particular person or, or one one particular uh, segment of of our government but you know we do have the olympics coming up
1: right that's probably a big one yeah so you guys you know lawsuit like what's How's it going to go down from here? Well,
2: um, yeah, I I know we have a reputation for lawsuits because we've... we've,
1: That's that's what it takes. That's what it takes.
2: I I think this one may not take that. Okay. And and I'm I'm seeing a lot of backing off already, but if it's backing off just because of um, the fiscal crisis situation, um, you know, I'm still concerned about, you know, private money coming in to fund it um i i you know what's where where they're at right now is uh stantec is making uh, a formal report to the department of recreation and and parks by the end of the year um they will recommend uh, this is what we've been told they will recommend one of the four options to the city and then the city will decide whether to make this a project now when they when they say make this a project, that means that it goes to the next level, which is the CEQA level, the California Environmental Quality Act, where they have to spend, throw, probably throw another million dollars at it to, you know, um, to do all of the, the study. Plus more money uh, to do uh, engineering and more details, because uh, right now it's just basically engineering, engineers have said that um, you know all four of these options are possible. So um, what we've done is um, we've sort of kept track of what other organizations have uh, other organizations have uh, uh, voiced their opposition, uh, and there's there's you know quite quite a list. The advisory board for Griffith Park uh, wrote a strong letter. Uh, Two of the closest neighborhood councils have written letters. Um, Center for Biological Diversity wrote a letter. Uh, Citizens for LA Wildlife. We have a list of about 25 uh, organizations that are opposed. Um, and on Monday night, the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy Board, will uh, have, they have it on their agenda. And uh, we, we feel that they, they will oppose it as well. I imagine all the,
1: all the, all the homeowner groups as well in like Beechwood. Yeah. And
2: yeah. Yeah. Including Hollywood land, including Beechwood neighborhood Canyon association Oaks. Um, now,
1: now is there, is there a way like is, would this tram even stop the tourist traffic through the hills to get to the sign it doesn't sound particularly like it would it just sounds like it would bring more people to the sign but you're still going to get if you got 30 people together you could clog up the streets up in the hills if you got 30 people at the same time to go see the hollywood sign it would clog up the streets in the hills it sounds like this isn't really going to solve the problem
2: um that's right. People still have the free choice of, of walking, you know, up to Duranda uh, are doing, of course, they can't go Beachwick Canyon anymore because the city closed the gate there. Uh, that was our lawsuit, which we lost. Um, and uh, you know, that, that was a great place to access, uh, you know, a great viewing site. Um, <clears throat> the, the, um, the thing that I hate most uh, about this plan is it doesn't incorporate any kind of public transportation. Um, we we have been saying that what they really need to do is have a visitor center in Hollywood. People want to see people go to Hollywood. You know, The tourists go to Hollywood. Um, if they had a visitor center, then they could run electric shuttles out of those visitor center to multiple locations. They could take them up, up to the observatory, you know, DASH takes them up there too, and that's been a huge success. Um, they, could, they could take electric shuttles over to you know, other places, up, up Canyon Drive to the, the Bronson Caves. And if they spread the burden a little bit, uh, it, it's not gonna be that much of a problem. Um, mm. and, and create other viewing sites too. And mm. and as you know, Don, the, uh, the uh, observatory um, really gets a lot of visitors uh, from the Metro line, from the red line uh, using Dash. Um, so, That's, you know, I think that's, that's what we want to do. Um,
1: It took like two years of constant lobbying and showing up to meetings just to get them to decide to use the dash and increase dash service. It was incredible how much effort people put into getting that message to Michael Shule. And there was like one meeting where you saw a light bulb turn on in his head and he's like, yeah, why don't we use the dash? It was like, we've been saying this for two years. So that was, you know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's too bad, you know, Griffith, we want to keep it as free as possible. It's too bad that we had to charge parking up there, but you know, that, that does uh, provide a way to, 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 to pay for the shuttles.
1: Oh, No, I think that was the best thing that happened. Uh, if you charge for parking, people will choose a different way to get up there, and that that helps. That's, I think, yeah. I think that was the right decision.
2: But you know, it's it's going to come back and kick us in the butt, though, Don, because I want to close Western Canyon Road completely, and now they won't close it because they have three million dollars a year coming in on parking. At least pre-COVID, they did. Uh uh you know what i'm saying it's a cash cow now
1: well they need to raise the prices which they have isn't it like ten dollars an hour now it's crazy oh
2: here's the story when when we finally agreed to to the the pay parking uh it was four dollars per hour okay and that seemed like they
1: were overshooting (laughs) like they were starting high so that the public could come
2: back it seemed that way
1: yeah, uh, when but they, we just they,
2: accepted it. That was in 2016. In 2017, um, the parking started. Uh, I mean, they they installed the, the meters. and And then in 2018, they decided to go back to the commission and they got permission to charge on a sliding scale, depending upon demand periods or the time of the year, summer, holidays that would range from $6 to $15.
1: I think that's, a, that is an excellent idea. That, that is the, I mean, I had pitched them uh, to do um, demand parking based on the time of day, not necessarily the season. And, yeah,
2: uh, yeah, but, you know, okay. You know, some some hikers, you know, like to, know they've been using the park you know really come to us and they really complain that you know why did you allow this parking to go so sky high but to finish my story um this year the commission even raised it again so now it's a base of ten dollars all the way up to 25 so it makes you even happier don I mean, and, and, and it seems like they, they've been keeping it at 15 consistently. Uh, but okay, you know, it,
1: it makes it makes me happy only if they commit to running those dash buses even more frequently and more reliably. I was working in the park for a little while just because I wanted to see how all this stuff goes down. and it's like the dash buses, were not frequent enough. People were, were, there were there. Were lines of people, and the dash bus would show up every half hour or something. It's like, guys, put more money into the dash. Get more dash service going. Get a dash lane. And I don't think they've done that yet. I haven't been to the park in a while, but yeah,
2: they haven't done that. And I, I, I i do like that idea i it drives me crazy when the dash buses take forever to to get up yeah.
1: The road. yeah yeah they they have they have the ability to do it i actually submitted a design to them with a dash lane and they wouldn't i don't even think they would have lost parking but uh they just there's like a disagree disagreement between the park and the greek and how things should be managed and the observatory team and it's just like somebody needs to go in there some benevolent dictator and just like lay it out and get that dash bus priority and people will take it people will use
2: it yeah yeah hey you know i i'm just uh just one thing i want to clear up about the tram proposal is that it it's a ride it's not like you can go up there and get off you're contained when you get up there
1: oh really Um, oh I thought it it, goes to like a platform or something
2: it goes to a platform that's enclosed um and uh there's no escaping it (laughs) (laughs) you have to get back on and go back down uh I mean in a way that's that's good because we You know they can accommodate fifteen hundred people an hour, um, on this. So you
1: just you just sort of go and you just sort of drift past the Hollywood sign and then you're just
2: a ride, Don. Yeah, just a ride.
1: I mean, I could see they're trying to satiate everyone's desire to see the Hollywood sign, and I guess they can make some money at it. But there really are gonna, I mean, I didn't realize there was that much infrastructure, like 24 towers in Griffith Park. That sounds horrific. And like someone's taking a rattle can and tagging on Griffith Park with a tram.
2: Right, right.
1: So yeah, yeah, some, you know, keep us abreast of what the next actions are to stop this, Um, you know. Jerry, we appreciate you coming on here and giving us the lowdown.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. And, and um, yeah, sorry, I, I may not have uh, been keeping all of the bikers up to date on this, uh, but you know, we went after uh, a lot of the organizations that, uh, you know, that uh, were are impacted by, by the tourism, uh, you know, traffic and congestion and they don't like it either. So.
1: Yeah. Well, it's one of those opportunities where there is opposition coming from a lot of different points on the political spectrum. So you've got homeowners that are against it. You've got nature lovers that are against it. I mean, bike riders are all of those people. So, you know, I think you just have, it's not necessarily a bike issue, but it's like, when you're riding through griffith park the thing that you enjoy is that it's you feel like you're in the wild so uh, yeah for I,
2: sure and I'm and all there. of the
1: comments that i've seen amongst the bike community is like this needs to be stopped so
2: yep we're still doing our weekly bike over the top
1: as much as oh we- really yeah <laughs> that's impressive that's quite a climb
3: when you say we're doing this weekly ride who's, oh
2: i I, I met my wife and i oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we 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 go out and, and, and do uh, you know up over Mount Hollywood drive <clears throat> down you know trash truck hill uh, down to the river and loop around and yeah uh, beautiful yeah so we're, we're, we're really marathoners but we can't run anymore so now we're biking
1: nice welcome <laughs> uh, you've probably been biking all your life just like the rest of us <laughs> But uh, okay, so yeah, this has gotta, you know, um, we'll, 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 where can we uh, see progress on this? Uh, updates? Friends of Griffith, do, do yeah, we have yeah, it?
2: Friends uh, of org. We have a page, you know, dedicated to the aerial tram. And, and uh, we're, we're any, any news, you know, when this report comes out, um, we'll be all over it. LA Times did a little, little story. Um, It it was, you know, pretty good. And um, so, you know, we'll, 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 uh, we'll let you know what's going on.
1: Okay. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for giving us the update. Yeah. Thank thank you. Good luck on your, uh, good luck with this. We're, we want to hear more. So come back anytime.
2: Okay. Will do. Thanks guys.
3: Thanks. So next we have, Felicia Garcia, and she's with uh, Equitable Eagle Rock. You know her? Yes.
1: Oh, so let's bring her on. Okay.
8: Hey, Nick. Hi, Don.
1: Hey. Hi.
8: Um, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, uh, no problem. Before
8: of I speak for Equitable Eagle Rock, though, I do. I don't want to start drama, but I just have to fact check that Cedillo was not endorsed by Bernie Sanders.
1: Okay. Okay, cool.
8: Cedillo uh, remains the um, first city council candidate in L.A. to be endorsed by Bernie Sanders.
1: Okay, yeah, you know, as soon as I said that, I realized, like, I probably said something stupid.
8: You went to the but dark he, side.
1: <laughs> they, they were definitely, uh, I guess it was, um, I guess it was uh, our revolution that endorsed Sadio. But Sadio, I, I saw him in Vegas speaking at the Bernie Sanders rally, and I was like, oh, God. But, uh, you know, I was just looking for a way to kind of draw together these Districts. So
8: yeah, um, so thanks yeah. for
1: correcting me. Thanks for correcting me.
8: Um, so yeah, I'm calling on behalf of Equitable Igarak. Um, so we've been advocating for the Metro's, um, BRT bus rapid transit line, which is the Noho to Pasadena. Um, and so in Igarak, we're advocating for the bus to go on Colorado. Um, otherwise it would go on the 134 and completely bypass Northeast LA. And so Metro recently released um, their draft environmental impact report. And because there was like a small contingent of people saying, anti-bus people saying, we don't want the bus in Rock, So they have three options. One is 134, one is okay. And one, it removes the bike lane on Colorado, which we fought for for years. Um, It would transform that into a shared bus bike lane, which would not work. So we're asking people to take action, which would be to send emails to Metro um, during this current comment period, which ends December 10th. And then if you could call into a Zoom meeting they're having tomorrow, 11 to one. And so we want people to speak up for that. We need to keep the bus lane, um, not only in Iraq, but we don't want it to be wiping out the bike lane because we shouldn't be pitting um, these different populations against each other.
1: So would you have, the plan that 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 you, I guess of the three plans, one of the plans would be keep the bike lanes, but also have the bus lane. So that means what, one car lane each direction?
8: Some compromise, but what we're really asking people to do right now is to ask for a new option because we're not happy with any of the options. Um, last summer, I started a petition that had over a thousand signatures, and we said we want the bike lane and a bus lane. But we also want to keep like the curb extensions and stuff. And the street is wide enough that they can fit everything in. Um, So it's really frustrating that they're not being more creative when there is capacity for that. So we're asking people um, to write in asking for a new option.
1: Now, um, you know, in terms of at least our fight On the Hyperion Bridge, which I hate to keep bringing up because that's, you know, that's one of the (laughs) bike talk bingo things that we're going to mark off. But, you know, it was pretty helpful to actually design, to get a design that you want out there. Do you guys have that? Do you guys have, like, the optimal
8: Um, design? Something that we are working on, Um, if you're online, if you go to... Um, either my Twitter, which is hippie runner, H I P P I E runner or, um, Topo Modesto, Michael McDonald's Twitter. We, we might be sharing more details there Um, trying to work on something.
1: Yeah. I would say that would be very helpful is like find, get a design that, that works for you guys and, and put it out there and you never know, like, uh, that's what I, you know, that's what I did. And I, even though we lost it did get into the the choices, like at least our plan became one of the choices. Right. And uh, I think that could happen in this case. It's like, okay, let's see what you guys would be happy with and let's fight for that.
3: My My impression about this was that it seemed like the way Metro was presenting the options, the one that was gonna be most politically palatable was gonna be the one where they take away the bike lane.
1: Yeah, well politically palatable is just depends on what kind of support you find. You know. Yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, so it's like they always talk about what's what's feasible and it's like what's feasible is like if we go door to door and we sell this then it's feasible.
8: And the only reason they brought in like the 134 option again for the DIR is because there was just a few it's a minority of people but um they were vocal and you know it's not the bus riders like the spanish only and the tagalog only speaking bus riders that if you take the bus you see them and they're not able to participate in these meetings for whatever reason and um their voices are not being heard that's why we're trying to activate people who are in the know to show up for this
1: right cool yeah you got a small minority of people who wanted it on the 134 and somehow their option got in it's like we got to get our option in too so whatever that is, is it, I mean, would it, this is the difficult part, right? It's like, I guess what Colorado right now is two lanes and one buffered bike lane in each direction. Yes. In this. Okay. So you would have to take out a car lane.
8: Um, Possibly.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's not scary. That's not scary. Like you, that can be sold. It's just, um, there's there's definitely forces out there that are working on this citywide. I mean, when they, the the BRT out here is controversial, that's that same. I believe it connects to the BRT that you guys are working on. Where's that sec- here, Don? In Northridge, that's by CSUN. We're talking about having a BRT go to CSUN on Nordoff, which is seven lanes, and uh, you know this guy. I keep bringing him up too. I'm not going to mention his name. That's I think it's another bike talk bingo square, but he riled up a whole bunch of nimbys out here against the BRT, and uh, that was a pivotal issue in the in the uh, election out here. So it's like uh, their right. their work. They're, it's like these groups are working like fix the city. Like uh, what's that other one? Um, in Pasadena. Keep LA moving. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Keep LA moving. There's like keep Pasadena moving. There's like all these. There's there's like organizations out there that are that are being loud and affecting this. So we got to do the same thing in return.
8: Yeah, that's what happens here. They had a website, E-Groc, um like four one one or something. So they were able to pay for a website and they were able to pay for all this stuff. Um, um, but they actually didn't show up um to the zoom meeting that we had i think it was last night and there was a lot of support of people saying i'm a parent i want my kids to be able to take this maybe to get from Egroc to like glendale city college or pasadena city college so that was really um affirming to hear that
1: yes awesome but we
8: don't know if they're if maybe they didn't want to stay up late and they're going to show up sat- tomorrow morning so we that's why we need people to um to zoom in or if you go to equitableeroc.com or if you go to my twitter you can find the petition and i put like everyone on the metro board their email address so you can send them like a note
1: oh okay We cool. want
8: you want to connect to um not just metro but we want kevin de leon our new council member um to hear from the community as well
1: yeah And, and then the 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 other thing too is like this this shouldn't just be limited like you guys having a BRT in Eagle Rock affects me as well because I want to get to Eagle Rock by public transit I do you know L A belongs to all of us so it's like it shouldn't just like we want right everybody to be involved yeah. so or, we need
8: you to call in then because we actually had someone last night who said um. She said, no one would ever take the bus to go to a restaurant and no one would ever come to Eagle Rock to do that. And hmm. so that sort of really, I mean, classist and like mentality that that kind of, um, it like sticks in the head of like the elected officials who are maybe listening. And so we do need people to.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's sort of like, then why do we have a freeway that goes to uh, Eagle Rock? Then if you're not going to want to go to a restaurant there, Um, probably shouldn't have built a freeway.
4: Hmm.
3: Um, So thank you, Felicia. Are you going to post this stuff on Bike LA? I mean, where are you posting this online?
8: Um, So com or um, our Twitter or my Twitter. And I'll definitely post it in the Bike Talk or Bike LA Facebook group.
1: Great.
8: I'll post links there. Yeah, thank you. Cool
1: all right just... All right. Th- okay thank you felicia we'll keep us you know obviously you and um agent x are welcome to come onto the show anytime and talk to uh talk to us about what's going on
8: <laughs> me and equitable eager rock a whole group of of neighbors maybe. a whole group
1: of neighbors anybody from that oh, group yeah. thank you all right see you good night so
3: Don, good show so far.
1: It's so cool. All right, do we have anybody else?
3: Well, we have a recorded interview.
1: Oh, we do? Okay, we'll our, take our,
3: away. Our
5: newest correspondent, Lindsay
3: Sturman.
1: Great, let's do okay. it.
5: This week on Bike Talk, we talked to a car dependency campaigner in London named Sarah Barry. She's written about being an adult beginner bike rider and how the UK is hoping to start something really groundbreaking, dubbed the Cycle Revolution. She also gives us a brilliant plan for how we can get the naysayers on our side. I'm Lindsay Sturman, and I'm incredibly passionate about bikes. Sarah, welcome to Bike Talk. You've become a bike activist, or I should say, would you call yourself a bike activist? And how did you become a bike activist?
9: I I don't know if I would call myself a bike activist. I think more than anything, I would call myself a car dependency activist, but I think those things go hand in hand. Um, so i am probably not your your typical um guest you know guest to be guest to be talking on this program i um i only learned how to ride a bike as in like only learned how to keep a bike upright and be stable on it about two years ago um and i only started riding a bike properly about six months ago, um, when a low traffic neighbourhood change was introduced in my neighbourhood, which basically means that a bunch of streets had their sort of entry rules changed uh, so that not not all cars could drive through particular roads. Um, So every house in the neighbourhood remains accessible by car, but it means that rat running or people sort of cutting through residential neighborhoods to, to shave a minute or two off their journey can't really happen anymore. Um, and the result of that was my street and my neighborhood went from being full of traffic to basically you know, empty and full of pedestrians, cyclists, scooters, children playing um, practically overnight. And when that happened, I thought to myself, you know, I'm out of excuses. I need to get a bike. I need to learn how to ride. Um and I suddenly became super aware as I'm sure that you know most most cyclists are of Just how big of a difference good infrastructure can make um, and sort of, you know, quieter car free spaces can make. So the experiences that I was having on my bike as a beginner who's still struggling, who still, you know, can't always signal confidently and sometimes falls off, um, was really different in my neighbourhood where these low traffic neighbourhoods were in place. And when I was sort of out in the wider world um, where there were no cycle lanes and no traffic calming and no infrastructure for cyclists at all. Um, And that made me mad um, because unfairness of any any sort should make everybody mad. Um, And I started writing about my experiences as a beginner cyclist and advocating for better streets and better infrastructure um and also just a more accessible culture and welcoming culture for for beginners like me who might not feel like there's a place for them but who where there absolutely definitely is a place for them
5: why do you think you learned what made you decide to learn a bike ride a bike and um is it just something
9: that people weren't doing when you were a kid So people definitely were doing it when I was a kid. I had a bit of a bad experience where I would have been about five years old, um, just learning how to ride a bike, just getting my training wheels off, you know, that sort of standard experience. Um, And I was going down a hill riding a bike with my friend and my brakes failed. um, And I sort of ran into the back of her and caused her a lot of pain. And I then became sort of terrified of cycling. And I grew up with two incredibly loving, but also very overprotective parents who weren't the kind of people to sort of encourage me to get back on the bike, so to speak. They were like, you don't wanna do a slightly dangerous thing? Fantastic, let's not do it. Um, So then, you know, I sort of, sort of fell out with with cycling as an activity but where i grew up i was sort of grew up in the suburbs on the outskirts of sydney and not many people rode bikes there there was absolutely no road there was absolutely no cycle infrastructure um, no support for people who wanted to use that as a form of transportation if not you know sort of a hobby so it didn't really feel like a big loss in my life until i moved to london and i started to see so many people in the city getting around by bike and having just what seemed like a much better time than me um i would be you know getting up really early walking to the tube you know squeezing myself into the most you know tight and congested sort of sardine can of a tube carriage um, to to Sort of be squeezed underneath someone's armpit on the way to work every morning um, and arrive mad at the world and and frustrated and tired even though it was only 9 a.m And then all of my colleagues who had cycled in would sort of, you know, pull their helmet off and like toss their hair in slow motion and (laughs) seem, you know, active and gorgeous and happy. And, you know, they'd already got their exercise in and they'd been outside and they were talking about the gorgeous weather. And, you know, I was just full of a very bitter raging envy. Um, and I thought that, you know, it just wasn't something that I was ever going to be able to do. Um, as i said i grew up fairly overprotected as a kid i didn't have a lot of a lot of experiences with trying things that were that were new and i wasn't good at in my history um i'm you know i'm a bit of a chubby girl so you know i didn't see you know people who looked like me a lot super represented out on bikes on the road um but london um transport for london has this incredible scheme where They will teach you how to ride a bike for free. Um, So it doesn't matter what level you're at. They have have sort of three levels of training. One is for absolute beginners who have never ridden a bike before. One is for people who can ride a bike but aren't used to riding it on the road. And the third is for people who like sort of want to go, you know, head to head with a double decker bus in central London. and they they match you up with with someone who will spend two hours on their Saturday teaching you how to ride a bike one on one and they'll bring a bike and, and walk you through it. So so wow. that's how I actually, you know, learn how to do it, um, you know, started off just like screaming and wobbling and, and all over the place. And then by the end of the session, you know, they had us had me sort of ducking and weaving through the obstacle courses and and different things like that. Um But again, it wasn't until sort of that 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 gave me the ability to ride a bike, but not the confidence to feel like I could ride a bike on a road. And it wasn't until changes came in place in my neighborhood that made the roads really, really quiet, that I could get the practice that I needed to be able to then take up cycling as a form of transportation. And, you know, in a, we just, we just found out now that, um, the UK's hit 33,000 cases today um, per day. So that was that was today's number for COVID, which is the highest we've had since March. Um, and public transportation, you know, still feels like something that I shouldn't be using, um, mostly because of the fact that, you know, if, if spaces on public transport are limited, I want those spaces to go to people who actually need to use it to, to get to work, to get to family, to get to, you know, the hospital, wherever it is that they need to be. Um, and being able to cycle now, is hugely transformative for my life because if it weren't for that you know I wouldn't have I wouldn't have gone further than walking distance from my house in 6 7 months and I hate to think what what kind of shell of a human I would be if, if that were the situation I was in
5: why do you think it's so hard to penetrate either the public or the elected officials to just it seems such a no-brainer to just make like to really like put bikes over cars, make it completely safe. There's so many reasons. And I guess I'm just, maybe I I just, you have to take the red pill and wake up, but I'm curious if you feel like you, what's, what's been the barrier.
9: Great question. Um, And it's it's a really interesting context at the moment in the UK, because our national government has just announced, you know, two billion dollars worth of funding to for what they're calling the cycle revolution. So they want everyone in the country that can physically cycle to be cycling as a main form of transportation so they're you know they're changing the road rules so that they prioritize cyclists and pedestrians they're building protected cycle lanes on basically every road they're you know they're really heavily investing the politicians have have got it they understand but the public is so far behind and there are huge sort of opposition from members of the public particularly driving members of the public who feel like this is a personal attack on them um and i think you know I think one of the reasons that that comes from one of the reasons that it's that it's so hard to sort of get movement in cycle infrastructure and, and protection for cyclists is because for so long, you know, the the car industry has been selling people this myth that owning a car equals freedom and that being able to 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 be free and succeed in society is very much tied up in having a car you know having a nice car especially in the u.s having a big car um and that just isn't the reality for people who especially people who live in cities um you know car ownership is incredibly expensive um it's 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 incredibly, you know, disadvantageous for the for the poorest and the most vulnerable members of society. Um, but it also is unsustainable. If we have an entire population who are using cars, our cities are going to be unlivable. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's these huge numbers of people that have bought into this promise of, of freedom and a better life and they've invested hard-earned money and hard-earned time into that. And then they're seeing infrastructure go in that is for um, people who haven't, you know, made those sacrifices and haven't made those choices um, that they also perceive as taking space and freedom away from them. And it's just like they've been you know, promised this ideal that hasn't eventuated. And there's this sunk cost feeling of, you know. I did everything. I did everything right. I've invested in this and I'm too far gone now to go back the other way. Um, So instead of, you know, thinking, is it still sensible for me to have a car or should I maybe get rid of that and start taking public transportation or learn how to ride a bike or walk to more local shops? People sort of double down and get, you know, quite aggressively clingy to, to this thing that they've invested so much hope in. Um, And I think that that's, you know, it's really understandable. And it's just such a, such a sad indictment on, on the way we've sort of allowed car culture to, to dominate. I always think of, I always think of jaywalking. I have, I have this distinct memory of um, the first time I heard about the origins of jaywalking and how initially it wasn't a crime. Initially, you know, pedestrians had right of way on every single road when cars were first introduced, but it was actually a campaign from a car company who, who talked about Mr. J Walker and put in a, um, a massive tombstone because he'd, he'd stepped out into the road without looking for cars. Um, And from, from that sort of, you know, Car industry campaign targeting pedestrians and 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 trying to trying to flip who had the power on the roads we've we 've ended up in this situation where where cars really dominate and everyone else is sort of plays second fiddle and and for me, that was the thing that caused that light bulb moment. I used to pass through this intersection on my way to the train station every day and it was impossible to cross the entire six lanes of the intersection in one green man, in sort of in one crossing. Um, you had to wait on this tiny little island in the, middle of the, in the middle of the lanes for about, you know, 10, 15 seconds. It doesn't it doesn't feel like a long time. But when it's sort of, you know, every day, every time you're crossing that road, um, it, certainly, it certainly feels like a long time when you're there. And to avoid it, people who were pedestrians would walk on the outside of the fence of this island and sort of hang on to it. Um, and and sort of balance sort of you know feebly on the edge of this sort of six lane highway um in the in the hopes of being able to get across the light in one go and and not have to wait for um not have to not have to wait a certain amount of time to get across the road and I would watch that every morning and think about you know when I first saw it I was like this is so dangerous why are these people making this choice like why are why are they risking their lives like this and then one day I, I was at that intersection and I looked at it and I was like, who decided that the person in the car's time was more valuable than mine? And like, why am I worth less? Because I'm on foot. Um, and it was basically from that moment, a, a switch had been flipped in my mind that was, that was really hard to, to go back. Um, but it's difficult for me to accept now, you know, as someone who's a car dependency advocate, who's someone who's a cyclist, that, for so long, even though I wasn't a driver, I still really subscribed to that car culture and car dominance and i I really thought that they they were just more deserving than I was, and it was never a conscious thing, it was just something that was so deeply embedded in me that I couldn't even see that it was there
5: for the politicians or like what do you think what do you think was effective in getting them to wake up?
9: I think you know the thing the thing especially in the u k that's been effective is is coronavirus, um, unfortunately, because we're in this situation where all of a sudden public transport is out the window, and particularly in London, the vast majority of people get around on public transportation, and there was this massive fear within the government that everyone was going to get in their cars and, you know, our streets were going to just grind to a halt. Um, and and that sort of forced people into, into that change. Um but i think when you're when you're in a different context you know i think of la and and how dominant the car culture is is there and how how much the city is also built around cars right it would be a very difficult place to begin walking to your destination all the time because everything is everything is built so far apart because everything you always have to have storage for you know a thousand cars in every building um but i think you know the I the I think the simple idea of for every bike on the road there's one less car um is one that sort of doesn't get spoken about enough and and a sort of angle that that we're trying to push really hard here which is you know if you are a driver and you see a cyclist you should like thank them be grateful (laughs) rather than thinking you know this person's in my way be like God, if a, if they went on that bike, that would be another car in this like traffic jam. Um, and you know, this is I'm getting there one car faster. Um, and you know, I think the biggest advocates that the the people that we really need to get on our side are the people who don't have a choice but to drive. You know, the people who have perhaps a mobility a mobility disability that means that they have to drive. I know that for, you know. A, around half of disabled people driving isn't an option for them but for those who who it is their only option um, for those who are you know traders that rely on 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 being able to use um, cars on bus drivers on on these people who have to be there seeing them really advocate for cycle infrastructure um, that enables, you know, there to be less cars on the road so that their journeys become easier. You know, these are the people that I think if we can get them on our side um, and it, it shouldn't take more than, you know, some, some, some considered conversation um, which, you know, in this day and age is, is very difficult to have. But I think that there's a really interesting coalition that can be made there of, of road users who say, you know, Um, I'm a cyclist and I'm a bus driver and I am someone who needs to use a car to get around and we all want more cycle lanes so that we can get less traffic on these roads. And I think as we enter this sort of era where we're thinking about social distancing, where climate change is becoming a a bigger consideration for everyone and where we've really seen the difference that driving makes to air pollution, um, like you know, in a way that has sort of never been able to be visualized before for a lot of people through the effects that lockdowns had, um, that hopefully we'll have a sort of new contingent who are who are advocating for advocating for these changes.
5: But do you feel like because the you have national health that people that the politicians are more attuned to like bringing those costs down and getting them under control?
9: I mean. Definitely. Um, it's something that the politicians are, are really interested in, but it's also something that the healthcare providers are in. So, something really interesting has happened in my local area recently where the local hospital here has funded the construction of three new low traffic neighbourhoods, like what's been int- introduced in my area. Because, on the one hand, they want their staff to be able to get to work easily and enjoyably and safely. So, they want to have safe cycling and walking routes, but also they want to have less cars on the road, because as healthcare providers, as people who work in hospitals, they're seeing the huge damage that car dependency in our cities is creating. They're seeing the impacts on people's lungs through air pollution and their cases of asthma and, and different conditions like that, that are coming up. They're seeing the cost of cyclists, pedestrians and drivers who are getting injured in road collisions. Um, And they're they're just sort of generally seeing the, the overarching health issues that arise from a really sedentary lifestyle that it's so easy to fall into if you're sitting down in your car all the time and they have a real vested interest in in making that stop so you know we've had coalitions of doctors of surgeons of GPs of hospitals of of all different sort of medical professionals here who have really been pushing the government to enact these changes to build more cycle lanes to to encourage people to stop using their cars because they know that their their jobs are going to be you know, much easier um, when, when, when people are much more able to walk and cycle.
5: That's amazing.
9: Um, So, I mean, I'm a new cyclist, as I said, I've only been, I've only been cycling for about six months, Um, but I was really shocked at how my experience of living life as a woman in this world had prepared me to live life as a cyclist, because I think so many, so much of the bullshit that women have to confront is very, very similar to a lot of the bullshit that cyclists have to, you know? If I am hit by a driver and and get an injury, um, the first question isn't going to be, you know, how fast was that driver going? Was that driver looking where they were going? Were they paying attention? Were they on their phone? The question is going to be, was I wearing a helmet? You know, had I just run through a red light? You know, and as a a woman, I'm like, I recognize this victim blaming like this is the exact same thing that you would ask me if I was going through a sexual assault. And, you know, I think as women, we're we're doing much better now than we have historically at calling bullshit on that kind of behavior and saying, you know what, this isn't about, like, I'm not the one in the wrong here. And I'm not the one who's going to be interrogated. And so I think when I, when I sort of stepped into that sort of cycling space, I was already sort of quite mad and quite, Quite resistant to the idea of of filling that victim role from the fact that I've just like lived life as a woman for thirty years. Um, the same thing with you know being deferential with space. You know I'm I'm gonna ride in the middle of the lane. I'm gonna take up space. I'm gonna I'm gonna feel safe and and seen the same way that I would if I was you know in a meeting room and trying to 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 get an idea across and having someone across the table either like mansplaining that to me or, or trying to talk over me. You know, I, as a woman, I'm, I'm now used to having to quite aggressively hold my space at the table. And as a cyclist, having to do that on the road, it, you know, it feels like I'm exercising the same muscles. Um, and that wasn't something that I expected or anticipated. And I think, you know, if I was a younger woman starting this out, I would have, I don't think I would have been a good, as good at those things. I think I would have, you know, been, you know, having, wear, always wearing the helmet, always donned out in the high vis, high vis, always you know, making sure that I was abiding by every rule and going above and beyond and doing everything to make sure that I was um, doing everything that I could do to prevent someone from hurting me. Um, and you know, taking up as little space as I possibly could. And and now that I'm older and hopefully a little bit wiser um, and and living in a in an age of you know incredibly strong women who uh, don't apologise for for sort of taking up space in the world. I think that that's that's really prepared me to be able to, to, to cycle well and to sort of fit into that, um, space in a way that's effective. And I, and I think, you know, I think that there, there is a part there to get more women involved in cycling because it is a real, it is a real form of empowerment, but you are also, you know, exercising muscles that you've been exercising for your entire life. Um, and I think that there can be a, a big sense of familiarity that comes with that.
5: That is so amazing. My mind is like racing because there's it's like it's such a complicated thought, but it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they see bicyclists as the enemy? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we hate we hate people ha- hate biker. It's so weird to me.
9: Yeah, you know I don't think it's anything personal. So like, so recently, recently I had a really bad experience cycling. Well, I shouldn't say really bad experience. I had a pretty normal experience cycling, um, but I was coming back from my um sister-in-law's place she lives she lives 10 miles away um and we were cycling I was cycling with my partner through you know a a sort of busy end at, at the school run like end of the school day and I just had so many near misses i just had you know vans that were going too close that were overtaking you know too aggressively that were speeding that were slamming their brakes on in front of me Um, and you know, I was nervous. I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I'm not a super confident cyclist yet. I'm, I'm assertive for sure, but I do get frightened. And I was sort of just my, my, my ethos in life is always just pretend that things are okay. Just like always fake it till you make it kind of thing. Just like if I, if I allow myself to be overwhelmed by this thing, then I'm going to have a terrible time. But if I just pretend everything is fine, it'll be fine. I was uncomfortable, but it wasn't until I sort of got home, And my boyfriend who'd been cycling behind me the whole time was just in a really sad down mood. Um, And I sort of asked him what was wrong. And he was just like, I've just spent the last hour like watching you nearly die over and over and over again like this was awful i feel terrible like you need to be more careful you need to do all of these things and like it was so interesting because before i was before i cycled it's the kind of thing i used to say to him all the time like this fear i would have about him getting injured on his bike and sort of being like please wear a helmet please be safe please do all these things and and he'd get annoyed at me again for that sort of victim blaming stuff and and I wrote this piece at the I wrote this piece after the experience of a you know a, a letter an open letter to the drivers that that had put me in danger that day and and the idea that I the sort of conclusion that I came to from writing that piece and from thinking about it is that no one who no one who is doing that no one who is behaving in that way who is being so aggressive towards cyclists and who doesn't want them on the road I don't think any of those people are having a good happy joyous life um, and you know the the biggest the biggest sort of offenders that I see on this stuff are um, generally you know tradespeople, people in vans, delivery drivers, um, people who are you know plumbers, electricians, all of these things, working class people who in an austerity era of London, you know, are really struggling. And for some people, I think that you know it might be the only time in their lives that they ever feel like they have more power over someone else. Um and, and in those days when you know you've you've you're barely making ends meet, you know, you're fighting with your family at home, you're really struggling, you're having a terrible time, and you're stuck behind a cyclist that's made you miss the red light and you're you're gonna be a little bit slower. Like when when you're when you're having that terrible a time, when you're that close to the bottom, I think it's really hard to to look out to other people with like generosity and kindness and and welcoming, you know, a welcoming spirit. Um I think it's much easier to sort of blame people outwardly for for your suffering and and the things that you're going through and also to to sort of replicate the power structures that you've seen performed against you so you know i wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the time the people who are you know yelling at me from from vans because i'm not going fast enough and and you know close passing me are just like having a terrible time and and that's the first time that day that they've that they've ever been in control or felt like they had control over a situation or power in a situation. And you know what? Like that might be wrong. They might, you know, they might just be, you know, people who've who've really got it out for cyclists in the same way that, you know, some people are misogynistic or some people are racist, or, or some people are these horrible things where they really hold these prejudices against a certain group of people. But I have a better time thinking that it's not that, that people aren't, you know, just really angry that I exist for that reason, but they're just having a bad time and and trying to let off some steam and it, it doesn't make it okay, but it makes it possible that, you know, I can still have a relationship with these people. And it might be the case that I, you know, run into them at a traffic light further up and say like, Hey, that really scared me and have them be like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just having a terrible time. And I know it's no excuse, but, um, and you know, I try not to engage with, sort of trolls on Twitter. It's, it's not, it's not where, where joy lies for me. Um, but whenever I do end up in a conversation with someone who is very aggressive or, or opposed to lots of ideas, if I, if I have the strength to approach that conversation with curiosity, which I very rarely do, I will often end up in a situation where that person is apologizing and saying, you know, things are just really hard right now. Um, And I think, you know, we were talking about we were talking about the sort of winners and losers rhetoric that that Trump has introduced in into America and into the world. You know, it's it's it it goes beyond borders. Um, And I think that I think that one of the things that that has created is this real sort of demonization of people on the other side Um, and this idea that you know, you have to, you have to externalize all of that pain and suffering and you have to push those out and that, you know, people just aren't curious about what's going on with someone else. Um, but I'll often, you know, if I, if I do have those conversations more often than not, the response is them just sort of being like, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I hadn't considered this. Um, and I'll, I'll try better next time. Um, and you know, like you said, I I hope that that's a world that we can get back to one that one that we don't seem so in opposition to each other all of the time. And I, I do really think it's possible. Um, but it does, you know, it does require more generosity um, than I'm often capable of giving.
5: I'm sure that's not true. But I, I think you're so right about this. It's like we put people in cars and tell them you have all the power in the world and we sell it to them constantly on TV and in movies and fast and the furious. And then they're stuck in traffic. I found myself so angry in traffic all the time that yeah. it was just putting me in a bad mood all the time. So I actually gave up my car and just started to lift, tried to use public transportation. Um, can I tell you one really cool thing about LA though, just to, for as you're thinking about all these things, just food for thought. Mm-hmm. LA actually started, I think it's over 400 villages, like little neighborhoods. Oh, wow. But most of our neighborhoods actually have a business district. So like I live in a neighborhood called Larchmont and like, we have a, a street and we used to have a butcher and a grocery store and a hardware store, and you could like walk and do almost everything. And so it, at it is a car culture and it was built around cars, but it started as these little neighborhoods. So I actually have hope that we can get back to that.
9: You know what I mean? Like shop local and, and walk to your butcher. So yeah. And you know that that sounds like the perfect conditions for something like low traffic neighbourhoods. You know, like only residents can drive. You know, within it, and the way that they're structured disincentivizes residents from driving to the local high street. It encourages them to walk or cycle otherwise. And then, you know, you can sort of go on to connecting or, or main roads if you if you need to get further afield. Um, it's like one of my favourite studies. I don't know. Are you familiar with the research of Donald Appleyard? No. So um, he did this research, I think it was in the seventies on the fact that if you live on a quiet street on average, you will have two more friends than someone who lives on a busy one. Um, And he found that there was like a direct correlation between how, how many friends and neighborhood neighbors someone had and how much traffic went by their street all the time. So for me, you know, I, I, I want to be able to walk and cycle in a way that is safe and pleasant, but I also want to know my neighbors and I also want to live in a thriving local community. Um, and for me, a big part of that is, you know, reducing the number of cars for me, you know, a busy road is a barrier. Um, and I want as fewer barriers in, in my neighborhood as possible. And, and since these changes have come into effect, you know, it takes me forever to get anywhere now because I'm constantly running into people that I know and stopping <laughs> and having conversations and, you know, I didn't think that was possible in London. Like that's, that's something I thought I was giving up when I moved to the big city on the other side of the world. Um, but like you're saying, you know, I live in a village in London and I'm starting to get to know more and more people in my village and it's beautiful and wonderful. And, you know, we didn't do it when there were more cars. And I think part of that is just like, we were just angrier and more tired and like, didn't like being outside. Um, and as you said, like every time I'm in a car, I'm always amazed at the transformation in my personality. Like if I see a pedestrian walking in front of the car, I'm like, oh, move, like you can get this like real frustration. And I sit there and I'm just like, well, who, what am I doing? Like if I was that pedestrian, I would be like, hello, I have just as much right to be here as you do. Um, but I think it's that like you don't have much agency when you're in a car. It can feel a lot of the time like you're just sitting there and trying to get to where you're going. There's so many external factors influence that. Um, and I think that like nothing enables you, things just disable you and and that's what you can end up focusing on.
3: Well, I wasn't prepared for that abrupt ending. I, I would have thought there was be a, <laughs> a last word, but that actually makes sense, yeah. So um, good show, Don, thanks for emceeing.
1: No problem, great guests. You're doing good, Nick. Thanks. Yeah, I was getting good guests. Thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who was the interviewer right here? This is a new person from yeah, the show. Yeah, good. this
3: is Lindsay Sturman, and she's doing uh, This American Bike. That that was a this Amazing.
1: Bike. Amazing. So that's great.
3: Yeah, cool. Uh yeah, well, good show. Uh next week we have two bike authors, Angie Schmidt, who did Right of Way. And another one named James Longhurst, and he made uh, Bike Battles a History of Sharing the American Road.
1: Cool. All right. Well, we'll see everybody uh, next week. Get on your bike more. Take it away, Nick.
2: Out the bike and I'm on my way The transportation shows I care Every turn of the pedal cleans the air
7: clean and the green,
2: I'm saving the planet Just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby and Janet No greenhouse gas, a tiny carbon footprint up your ass I'm on a motherfucking bike I'm on a motherfucking bike
3: Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.